2: So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
3: Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
4: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the authors and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia, Stuff Media, or its employees. Listener discretion is advised. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, Monster Presents
2: Insomniac. I'm Scott Benjamin, and everything I'm about to tell you is real. This is Insomniac. On July 2nd, 1996, a Canadian trooper cautiously approached the driver of a vehicle parked under a bridge. The man behind the wheel was asleep, and when asked, he claimed he was a tourist, just stopping for some rest. As the trooper talked with the American traveler, she noted that the back seat held some luggage and a large stack of videotapes. However, since there was really no cause for alarm, the two parted ways. The truth was, the tourist had been living out of his car for several days at this point. the very next day on July 3rd, 1996 that same American visitor was in Pinery Provincial Park in Grand Bend, Ontario, Canada the stack of videotapes in the back seat was now nowhere to be found and next to him was a rambling three-page handwritten letter on yellow notepaper stating that his marriage was failing his business was failing and he was sorry for messing up the park after all he had planned to do this somewhere else. He finished his long note with the line that he simply wanted to eat a peanut butter sandwich, his favorite snack, and then go to sleep. With that, he pulled out a 357 Magnum and shot himself in the forehead. By the time his body was discovered later that evening by some campers, he had been missing for eight days. What really brought this man 400 miles from his comfortable Midwestern home, and why did he feel the need to end it all so abruptly with a bullet to the brain? Was it really the pressures of a failed marriage and business, or was there something more sinister to the story? As it turns out, there was a lot more. In fact, the dark truth was only beginning to be unearthed in his hometown of Westfield, Indiana, just one day before his death. And people in the small town were already beginning to talk. Most killers aren't very open about their murdering ways, and that's with good reason. But that presents a problem for the killer. While secrecy is absolutely necessary, a lot of killers find they need to share what they've done, They feel the need to brag and receive recognition they think they deserve for the depraved acts. Of course, that's dangerous for the killer. Tell the wrong person, and you'll end up in prison for life or receiving a death sentence. You're going to learn how the I-70 Strangler found a way around this dilemma. How he found a way to share his terrible secret with an entire group of onlookers. And he knew that none of them would ever report him to the police. How could he be so sure of their loyalty? We'll answer that question along the way. To begin our story, we have to start almost exactly 25 years ago in a city known as the Crossroads of America, Indianapolis, Indiana. By the mid-1990s, the Indianapolis Police and the Marion County Sheriff's Department knew they had a problem. Gay men from the area surrounding Indianapolis, all matching a similar physical description, age, height, and weight, were disappearing. Ten had disappeared in the previous two years, beginning in the spring of 1993. But the problem wasn't exactly new to the authorities either. From 1989 to the mid-1990s, the discarded dead bodies of men were being found in the rural areas along the corridor of Interstate 70 between Indianapolis, Indiana, and Columbus, Ohio. All of them had been strangled to death. At the time, the investigators couldn't piece it all together. There were no witnesses, and there just wasn't enough usable evidence left behind. The only known connection was the missing men's ties to the gay community, A lot of them were taken on their way to or on their way home from Indy's gay nightclubs. But now, in the fall of 1994, things were about to change. Following a tip from an informant, one that wanted to remain anonymous, the hunt for another man, someone known as Brian Smart, was on. According to the informant, He was at one of Indy's gay nightclubs and he saw another man who was overly interested in a missing persons poster that had been tacked on the club's wall. The poster featured a photo of the informant's friend, Roger Goodlett. Goodlett had gone missing in July of 1994. Intrigued and more than a little suspicious of the stranger, the informant introduced himself to the man. He said his name was Brian Smart and he was a landscaper from Ohio. The informant tried to get Smart to talk more about the missing Goodlet, but every time he mentioned the missing man, Smart became evasive and changed the subject. As the night wore on, Smart became emboldened and invited his new friend for a late-night swim at the house he said he was temporarily living in. The man noted that Smart was driving a gray Buick with Ohio license plates. Since the informant wasn't familiar with the area north of Indianapolis, He didn't know exactly where the house was located but he was able to describe where they ended up that evening it was an area surrounded by big homes long split rail fences and horse ranches the house they drove to was a large tudor style home and the pair entered from a side door he noticed that the interior was crowded with dust covered furniture and boxes as they made their way through the house then down some stairs to the bar an indoor pool area Smart offered his guest a drink that he had prepared himself but the informant wisely refused it Smart then excused himself and when he returned he was a lot more talkative than before The informant suspected that Smart had just snorted some cocaine He knew enough about the drug to notice the telltale behavioral changes it produced Soon, Smart brought up the topic of autoerotic asphyxiation. That's when someone receives pleasure from suffocation or being choked, either during intercourse or masturbation, often to the edge of death. Smart asked the informant to strangle him first, and he went along with it. He choked Smart with a pool hose while he masturbated and passed out. After Smart revived, claiming a sexual rush like no other. It was the informant's turn. It was at this point Smart began choking him with the pool hose, but when it was clear that he wasn't going to stop, the informant pretended to pass out, and Smart released him. When the informant finally opened his eyes, Smart appeared rattled, and he claimed he was scared because the man had lost consciousness. The truth was, Smart didn't expect his late-night pool guest to wake up at all. And that's what spooked him. It was apparent that Smart had done this before. And the man said that his hands were strong and confident around his neck as he strangled him to the edge of death. When they had finished their poolside fun, the pair collected themselves and Smart drove the man back to Indianapolis, where they agreed to meet up again the following week. The informant felt that Smart's deviant behavior in the pool that evening might explain what happened to his missing friend, Roger Goodlett. He called to tell the authorities about his suspicion. However, that following week, at the time and place they agreed to meet, Smart never showed. And, for a while, he remained a ghost. Oh and one more creepy detail shared by the informant about the large house somewhere north of Indianapolis. There were mannequins all over the place and in different postures, including lounging around the pool area. They were well-dressed, almost as if they were attending an upscale pool party. When asked about the mannequins, Smart replied that the owner of the house didn't want to be lonely. He kept them around for company. So, why mannequins? What's the fascination? Well, it's due to a condition called agalmatophilia, which is the sexual attraction to a statue, or a doll, or a mannequin, or any other similar figurative object, most often one that has a female form. Those that have this condition are sexualizing a doll. The homeowner in today's case just happens to be sexualizing a group of life sized dolls. If you know where to look, examples of agomatophilia can be found in lots of places. It appears in the arts. Hans Bellmer created and photographed life sized fetish dolls in the 1930s. And the sexualized doll photography of German artist Helmut Newton is another example. There are instances of this in novels and movies too. And dating much earlier, there's the Greek myth of Pygmalion, a sculptor who fell in love with the statue he had carved. If you're looking for modern examples, those are easy to find too. For instance, Ronald Dotson, aged 39 at the time, was arrested in the city of Royal Oak, Michigan in 2007. Police spotted Dotson near a smashed out storefront window that displayed a mannequin wearing a French maid outfit. This arrest came just a week after he was paroled for his sixth breaking and entering conviction over the course of 13 years. Now not all of Dotson's crimes involved mannequins, but a lot of them did. One notable arrest in his past came after police had found him in an alley behind a woman's clothing store with three mannequins. All were dressed in lingerie. This is clearly a man who has a sexual fetish for female mannequins and simply can't control his urges, even if that means breaking into a business to satisfy his needs. For his crime in Royal Oak, the judge gave Dotson a harsh sentence, a year and a half in prison, but that's likely because he was a repeat offender with many prior convictions. And the judge reasoned that Dotson's behavior, even though he never really harmed another human, struck fear in the community. With the information and descriptions provided by the informant, the police staked out the gay bars in Indianapolis, interviewed bar patrons, and posted flyers. But they weren't able to locate anyone named Brian Smart or anyone who fit the description. And the killings continued. Finally, a year later, in the fall of 1995, the police got another break. The informant had spotted Brian once again, and this time, he got the man's license plate. The Indianapolis police ran a check on the license plate number, and the results pointed back to the car's owner. Brian smart was actually Herb Baumeister, a resident of the nearby suburb of Westfield, Indiana. Herbert Richard Baumeister was born on April 7, 1947, in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the eldest child of Herbert and Elizabeth Baumeister, and he led a seemingly happy childhood. But in adolescence, he started developing antisocial behaviors. There were rumors of him urinating on a teacher's desk, he started playing with dead animals, and friends remember him speaking of wondering what it would be like to taste human urine. Secretly, Herb's father had him take psychological tests, tests that indicated Herb was a schizophrenic and that he had multiple personality disorder. The odd thing is that there's no record of Herb ever receiving treatment for either condition. By 1965, Herb had graduated high school and was accepted into Indiana University. He dropped out of college after just one semester and went to work as a copy boy for the Indianapolis Star newspaper, but returned to IU in the fall of 1967. And that's when he met his future wife, Juliana, or Julie, as she preferred to be called. In November of 1971, Herb was 24 years old and he and Julie were married. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the two had three children together, two girls and a boy, Marie, Eric, and then Emily. In 1972, not long after his marriage to Julie, Herb spent two months in a psychiatric hospital, committed by his own father. Julie agreed with the decision, saying Herb was tired and he needed help. by 1974, Herb had taken a job with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, and was eventually promoted to program director. This success didn't last long, however, as signs of his mental illness began to show, and his position was finally terminated in the 1980s, when he urinated on a letter which was to be sent to the then governor of Indiana, Robert Orr. The next several years weren't much better for Herb either. On September 3rd, 1985, Herb, now 38, committed a hit and run while intoxicated, but there was no severe punishment. Then, less than one year later in March of 1986, Herb was charged with auto theft and conspiracy to commit theft, but he once again avoided punishment and somehow beat the charges against him. That very same year, Herb's father died. On the positive side, Herb had taken a job at a local thrift store that inspired him and his wife Julie to start a business of their own. In 1988, Herb's mother, Elizabeth Baumeister, loaned him the money to open his own thrift store. The Baumeisters called their new thrift store, Save-A-Lot. Not to be confused with the chain of grocery stores that go by a similar name and it was initially successful, earning the couple a small fortune in the first year alone. The pair soon opened a second location and things were beginning to look up for the young family. Herb was a domineering business partner, which Julie didn't like, but tolerated. And the employees of Save-A-Lot noticed that Herb would often disappear for several hours at a time, right in the middle of the workday and he always returned smelling like alcohol. Despite Herb's questionable management style, by 1991, the small Save-A-Lot chain was successful enough to allow the Baumeisters to buy a new home. A much bigger home outside of the city. Somewhere with a lot of property and privacy, where Herb could conduct a different kind of business. I inherited a fascination with true crime from my father. Other members of our family would shake their heads and wonder why he was drawn to such dark material. But I always understood. It's voyeurism. A front row seat to view the thoughts and actions of monsters, their victims, their families, and the authorities who hunt them. Now it's my job to research these stories to the fullest extent. To study them every day. I know it sounds like a dream to some of you, and I thought it would be too, but I was wrong. True crime isn't the escape that it once was for me, it's become the opposite. Making this show has unlocked something inside of me, something I've kept a secret until now. I have nightmares, extremely realistic dreams that prevent me from sleeping sometimes for several nights in a row. Nightmares that are filled with monsters, real life killers like the I-70 Strangler. These nightmares are so vivid, they distort my reality, blurring the lines between waking and sleeping. But the worst part is that sometimes the monster in my nightmare is me. When I wake up, the whole day, I avoid eye contact with everyone, certain that I'm guilty of something horrible, and they can somehow read it in my sleep-deprived, bloodshot eyes. I know these killers, their stories, and I'm hoping that by sharing their cases, I can take away the power that they have over me and get some much-needed rest. And I'm telling you my secret, because I know I can't be the only person who's struggling with this. While researching this case, I came across something highly unusual. Something I never really expected, and fairly rare among the ranks of serial killers similar to Herb. I found a short video clip that shows what amounts to a chance encounter with a serial killer by a local television station in Indianapolis. The new station was WISH-TV, Channel 8, and the reporter interviewed Herb Baumeister, right at the height of his crimes. There's no indication in the video as to what year the interview took place, but I have it figured to be between 1991 and 1994. The background of the shot is clearly Baumeister's property. There's no doubt it's his fields, his driveway, and his fence. In fact, you can match the location with crime scene photos taken at the property years later. We'll play the audio for you in a moment, but here's how all of this came to be. Herb and his son were near the road just outside of the property, and they witnessed a road-striping crew passing by. There also happened to be a dead raccoon on the road. As the crew approached, Herb said to his son, I think he's going to lay a paint stripe right over that dead raccoon. Sure enough, the crew did just that. Apparently, this angered Herb so much that he decided to take photographs of what he witnessed and share them with the local news station to alert them to this wrongdoing. It's a very strange interview. There's Herb, standing on the edge of his property, wearing a suit and tie, and looking exactly how you would imagine a successful small business owner might look in the early 1990s. Nothing seems to be out of the ordinary. He's relatively calm, he's amiable, and even laughs a bit. But at the same time, he seems appalled at the callous treatment of this dead raccoon. I find this extremely strange. Listen to his interview and see if you agree.
4: Herb Baumeister of Carmel saw it all. I said to my son, they're going to hit that raccoon with a spray gun, and sure enough, they just striped right over its face and neck. You know, didn't even move it. You know, no effort to, you know, get it out of the way. So I happened to have a Polaroid with me, so I took a shot at the thing. A raccoon, which met its demise on the yellow line, became one with the paint. The raccoon has since been removed. This is all that's left. This was just, you know, uh, that painter should have had a chalk line drawn around his career by state officials. There was no excuse for that. I mean, the poor thing deserved a better fate than that.
2: The poor thing deserved a better fate than that. The question is this. Is Herb really that upset about the treatment of a dead raccoon? Or is he using this as an opportunity to try to blend in? Trying to appear a little more... normal? than the way he was perceived by everyone around him. Was he attempting to pretend to be a normal, functioning member of society? I guess we'll never know the answer. The Baumeister family was ready to move into their new dream home, but the cracks were beginning to show and Herb's secret life couldn't stay secret for long. Eric, Herb's son, was about to make a gruesome discovery in the woods, something that should make Julie question everything she believed about her husband. But she ignored it. Next time, on Insomniac.
5: Insomniac is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, written and hosted by Scott Benjamin and produced by Miranda Hawkins, Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Josh Thane. Music composed by Makeup and Vanity Set, and cover art by Trevor Eiler. And a special thanks to Joe Malillo and Wish TV. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at Insomniac Pod, on Instagram at Insomniac Podcast, and at our website, insomniacpodcast.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite
3: shows.